What do you think about product management? This is conversation. How awesome just... am I? Let me tell you how awesome I am. <laughs> what does everyone else do wrong if you don't? I know. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Kuffel, one of the makers behind this show, and I'm joined by Brett Novak, Liquid & Grits founder and CEO. On today's episode, we're chatting with Sam Ahn, previously a co-founder of Blue Shell Games, a company Brett used to work at that was later acquired by RockU, and currently an advanced product manager at WB Games. Sam Ahn is someone who has been on both sides of the product fence as an engineer and product manager, so we dive into his unique perspective and discuss various strategies for communicating with different types of team members, the importance of asking the right questions, and the virtual reality slots company Brett almost started. This is Creators at Work. Let's start out with something a little bit fun that I'm kind of interested in how that happened because it's still memorable to me, but food was a big part of Blue Shell Games, okay? And I'm not just yes. saying like our company parties were for us, well, I think we were about 30 plus, give or take. Yeah. Our company parties were epic meals. I'm talking <laughs> yeah. 15 course type stuff where I was rolling out of there and it was like every single course was selected for you. It was something I had never eaten before. It was unbelievable. And it was at a restaurant that I'd never heard of in and SF, just started right? in <laughs> SF. I mean, just totally epic everything. And then in addition to that, we used to have Fridays down in Chinatown and have just oh, yeah. unbelievable food at X and Z and Y, Z and Y. Talk to me about culture, how food got integrated. I know you're a big foodie. You love your IPAs and how that got incorporated <laughs> in the culture. And then other, other components of the culture as we get a little bit more tactical and stuff. One thing I've heard about culture is that no matter how much you try, it just kind of like seeps out of the founders. And I think that really happened with the food. Like we were all just like just foodies and you know, I grew up in the East Coast from Philly and Boston and like I don't I don't know nothing about the food scene in SF and then part of it for me was also you know I, my daughter was born not too long ago and like this going out to SF for like business trips like to see everybody was my first like oh I'm away from my family I'm free I need to eat and I'm just hungry <laughs> so that's that's something that just memory that kind of just sticks with me but yeah we were all like going to food besides lunches and like the crazy parties you know I don't remember like randomly we'll just go and I'll just buy like a dozen pints of ice cream and bring it back or just buy some like fancy cheese and you know just go on a beer run but we enjoyed it and i think we tried to share our joy with with others and especially at a small company you know like anywhere from like you know, three to 30 people or whatever and when we in the good years and you know, feast and famine when you're having feasting and you're having like a great year and run rate you blow how much money to rent out a restaurant for a whole night it's worth it and it was great and I, I remember when we were planning other parties and we're like, oh, should we not do one this year and just do something else? There's something low, low, low key. And then I remember Shustin, who's our HR office manager person, was like, can talk to people. And it, it turned out that like people really look forward to them, not just because of the great food, not just because it was like, you know, the annual party, but like it was kind of like a celebration, almost like a prom. All that feeling together, like all the working all year and then like just celebrating in, in that way around like really good food. And especially if you get a whole restaurant, small restaurant to yourself, it was really intimate. And like that joy and that moment was like really special. And like, it's just, th yeah, those memories are like just stuck in my brain. I just like, I just I love those memories. I agree. Having experienced a few of them, they were 
epic. And I remember all of them and not being much of a foodie myself. I was always super excited to experience everything you guys did with food because I was sort of a pleasant guest basically on this journey of food that someone had prepared for me. And I didn't know what I was going to order or whatever. So it would just be, it was always set menu too. It was yeah. just like, you mm-hmm. just didn't have a choice. You were going to eat. Yeah. yeah. You were going to eat like, what was that black octopus pasta? Like all these wild <laughs> yeah. things. Oh yeah. That I had ne- you know, squid. Thank you. Black squid. Ravioli with the uh, soft egg oh. inside. Oh yeah. Oh, I also enjoyed the lunches too in Chinatown because I never had Szechuan Chinese food personally. And, and it was another experience where Brian or whomever would order everything. And then we would just dig in and uh, it was yeah, just I'd be swaying like fast. crazy and like, yeah, yeah it was so fun. Yeah. So one of our goals here on the podcast is to embarrass me. And there is one food story <laughs> that you can potentially talk about. Katie enjoys these, but there is a food place near where you live now that I love. Oh, yes. Noakes that we may have to shout out on the podcast. All right. If anyone is in the Boston area, go to Harvard Square, go to Pinocchio's, you know, right off of JFK. Uh, after you order, just past, you know, the counter, look up on the wall. There's a picture of a hockey team. Up in the corner, you will see a face that you recognize. I've seen that picture for years. And then, then I meet Brett and then I go back like, oh. So every time I go to Pinocchio's, I'm like, I look at like, hey, Brett. Pinocchio's is an amazing pizza place too. I I think it's the best in Boston. I'm going to go out and say it. And I'm a big pizza guy. So if there is a food that I know, it's pizza. I grew up in New Haven. It's rated the best pizza place in America, in the world. Okay, New Haven. We take it very seriously. I actually (laughs) grew up 0.7 miles away from the best pizza place in America, which is modern pizza, according to Dave Portnoy. (laughs) Who is the pizza rating? Like just... I wouldn't say I love God, that you came he... with like your pizza receipts, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> yeah, I looked this up a week ago because someone sent it to me. He said New Haven's the best. That place is really, really good. And it's right in Harvard Square. It's like down this alley. Everyone in Harvard goes there yeah. and eats there every single night. I mean, so it's and it's, it's a big hockey hangout. As you imagine, the hockey guys eat a lot of food. And so the year that we won the ECA, ECACs, someone on our team got the poster, we all signed it and threw it up on the wall, partly because I think we ended up getting to, you know, cut the lines or get free pizzas all the time, you know, but there was, there was us up there. And I think the 89 national championship team is, is probably still up there because those guys were regulars too. And that was a legendary hockey team and they're up on the wall as well. But, um, yeah, Sam always sends me pictures of my big head because I was one of the seniors on that picture. So it was four seniors and we're kind of big headed on each corner of the poster. And then the regular team is in the middle and then it's signed. So yeah, stop by. If you're in the Boston area, stop by there, get a slice or two and uh, yeah, say hi to Brett. So one of the things that we talk about a lot is just org structure and other things like that. And we did creep on some of your medium posts that I don't know if you want to jump into, but one of the things you talk about a lot is goals, which I go back and forth with the importance of goals because I find them to be hard to determine. I find them to be hard to be accurate. Mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes they may oversimplify things. And you talk about in one of your medium posts, the importance of having goals to, well, one, you talk about the North star metric, but the other is you talk a little bit more about goals and autonomy and trust. Why are those important in product and, and how do you think that applies to a successful team? Yeah, I think about goals, like you know, when you were talking about how um, you know how useful it is, it's like they're useful and depending on how specific or vague you want to get, they're useful when they get people aligned. Even if it's not a perfect a goal or it's not specific enough or it's too vague, 
as long as it gets people in the right direction. It really depends on context, right? Like how big your org is, how many people you need to get rally around a goal. Are you talking about a goal for multiple teams or a whole studio or just for one team or a few people? And depending on that context, your goal has to be just codified enough where it gets people on the same page and to have good discussions. So if you are just dictating work, that's like one thing. But if you want to have a team working together and use everyone's skills and talents and opinions, you know, the best way to do that is to have some directional goal uh, to have a discussion around. Because without that, if you fundamentally disagree on whatever that thing is, then those discussions get less useful. <laughs> then you start arguing about mm -hmm. what the goal is, right? But that might be good, because uh, then you might find out what the what the better goal is. But you at least need to start somewhere so that you're on the same page, going at least in the right direction. So is this North Star goal something that you use now? Yeah, so the North Star framework is a framework that a lot of people use. And this company, Amplitude, Amplitude.com, uh, they, you know, not too long ago, packaged like this format of like of a workshop and like this kind of North Star framework and it, it really when I first saw a presentation on it at a meetup it like it really like spoke to me and uh, the summary of it is you have a you know, let's say you have like some business goal right like you have some business model and a, and a, and a business goal and you have a North Star let's say it's a metric and then the more you have of that metric that'll lead to your business goal your business model and so the idea is you don't attack the North Star directly you attack the inputs so let's say let's talk Spotify Spotify is an example that's often used so let's simplify a little bit let's just say premium subscriptions is a business model so they want to get more premium subscriptions every month that's a business model okay the North Star might be an example of hours listened to by subscribers like per week or per month and if you have more of those it should lead to more money the more subscriptions and more revenue now you don't attack the North Star directly you want to have teams like okay we're going to attack this north star this is our mission for the next week what you do is like you form inputs that if you improve those inputs they will lead to uh, improve north star so inputs one way to think about it uh, that they describe in this workshop is a uh, breadth depth and frequency so breadth like how many people you know start a trial how many people convert uh, so and so so forth depth like how long are the sessions you know how frequently do people have sessions in a week they don't have to be perfect but these are different ways to think about it and you know, Amplitude, for example, so they, they make they make charts. Their business, their mission is not to make charts. Their mission is to help people build better products. And the, one of the North Stars early on was uh, weekly querying users. Okay, how many people that use a product like run a query and run a chart? But then they realized, you know, that doesn't really like uh, line up to what we want uh, and sort of like our business model and how we want to approach the product. And they evolved that their North Star to weekly learning users. So a weekly learning user, I forget the exact details, but like within an org, you know, you'll have promoters, people who really love the product and share it, right? So what they do is like they have inputs where not only does someone create a chart, but someone else views it a certain number of times. And so they form these inputs so that as, you know, more people are creating charts, more people are sharing, more people are learning, those inputs drive their North Star metric of like weekly learning users. And I hope I got that correct. And then that lines up with a business model of helping, you know, data democracy, you know, helping people learn and use data to build better products. That is one way, one model of thinking about goals. And you can do this for a whole org. You can do this for a small team. It's kind of like a slightly simplified version of what some people call like impact mapping. So you just have the whole tree structure of like, oh, this is like my vision, strategy, things. You can just have this whole tree structure. But if you just start with business model, North Star, inputs. And depending on how many teams or the way you think about it, you can have a team per input. But this is just, again, one, like people say, uh, uh, no model is perfect, but some are useful. So this is the one that I found to be useful, not necessarily to force people to like, oh, let's find this North Star today and get these inputs today. But what I found useful and I've held, um, you know, maybe a dozen workshops at a couple places is that what's more useful than 
buying that perfect metric is giving people uh, a framework to discuss these things. And I found that even without perfect metrics, it, it's really useful for that. It's really useful for thinking about things in a slightly different way that's a little more useful than like arguing about this metric or that metric or like what our goal is. It, you at least put those discussions in a framework to talk about it. And I found that really useful. This is interesting because it's something I've been thinking about with Liquid and Grid as we start to grow. If I hear you correctly, one of the things is just allowing people to discuss the goal so they understand the inputs so they can go make their own decisions in a way, right? Because we're building out, for example, leads in different departments and they don't have a lot of visibility into the sort of for example, the finances of the company. Therefore, it's hard to, for them to make decisions into what to invest in. For example, I had the lead, uh, the data lead was building, investing in some inputs around our one of our markets, right? I mean, that market happens to be less than 10% of our overall revenue for our subscriptions. And so I just told them like, hey, this is 10%, less than 10%, and it's likely going to be less in the next year or two. And I realized just that data point allows him to go make that decision on his own, as opposed to having me tell him that. And so what I hear you somewhat saying is if you have the goal and then you're debating the goal, though that knowledge gets assimilated into people who then have that information and then can go make better decisions as they're going going on and you can have a more decentralized system. Is that yeah, yeah, is that totally. kind of right? Yeah, that's like um like people always say they want to push decision making down and it doesn't always happen as smooth as people want. But yeah, having a goal and having enough strategy to like guide how to attack that goal is like really powerful, right? If you say like, oh, you know, improve retention. Yeah, you know, let me make this little change and improve retention. Like not, it's gonna be impossible to measure that often. But if you have a strategy like, oh, we think we can retain people and by doing X, Y, and Z, you know, that's what sometimes people call like a theme or a bet. And then if you combine that with, you know, that goal, like, okay, you give people some space to to think about it and like have low, be a little more tactical about it. But again, if, if you don't have the strategy then you have to start forming those, um, otherwise it's just like everyone give me ideas to improve retention, uh, which is not always useful. <laughs> yeah. Do you find that it's also helpful in create cross-pollination of work between specific teams or between people working on specific inputs? Yeah, I think at least when those groups are in those larger meetings, like discussing, like, oh, how's this thing going? How's that going? Like, it might also be like a way to say like, oh, you don't have to ask, oh, why are they working on this? It's like a negative thing. It's like, it, like some things don't have to happen because that's there. You know? So mm -hmm. it's like at least that mutual understanding, the conversation when people bounce ideas off each other, they have that uh, foundation that, and that, that can be useful. And so you're you're pretty unique in that you have been both a developer when you're at Blue Shell Games and now at WB Games, you're on the product side. What are some of the things that you've done differently having experienced both sides of the fence in terms of the game development process? The first thing that comes to mind is like, you know, when you just don't understand the other person's jargon, I don't have to worry about that. Like it's like natural, uh -huh. so there's less like awkwardness, right? What are you talking mm -hmm. about? You know, blah, blah, blah. Like, some of that plus I guess just the raw empathy because like I know what they're going through like I know what complexity is like I know jumping into spaghetti code is those things little things help build trust I think in like some small like subtle ways I can't really like quantify it or anything but I think that, I think that helps uh, at least with like the relationship and how I work with uh, some of those other team members uh, one thing that I think about is I don't know if you ever noticed how there's antagonism between engineers and product managers I don't know if you've ever seen that and you know as an engineer as a young engineer you know, I was pretty arrogant half time I was like angry at like whatever project manager or product manager I was like 
this is stupid. Why am I spending so much time doing X, Y, and Z? And like, you know, have these discussions and I'd always be frustrated. And so I think that still like lingers. Uh, but <laughs> I think that, that kind of experience makes me lean towards simplicity when I write up a spec or something, you know? I always lean towards that and try to be like, cut out all the fat, you know? Like, that's like my default. So many times you'll see people come up with a spec, this beautiful one pager. They talk to customers, they did all this research and they lay, lay down, it's like, what happens, right? They say, how long is it going to take? You know, it's like, oh, it's a paper. Oh, it's too hard, right? Like, you, just have, you have this conversation and okay, you negotiate what's more important, all that crap. Some of that that conversation I think can happen more naturally because of because of what I know by default you can get away with it but just better communication because I understand and have gone through just the pure production process like writing code individual contributor that process is like just so ingrained as part of how I approach even writing a spec because a beautiful spec is great, but you know what's important? Shipping value to customers and learning, right? You'll find a lot of product managers that think about that, but that that takes a long time to learn. A lot of experience to uh, to do well, and like I still like stumble on it, but I think I have just that production background. It's just like just so ingrained. It's like just it's just part of how I work as a product manager. And you mentioned arrogance, which I never picked up, Sam, when we worked <laughs> together. And I'm not just saying that because this is recorded. I, I, what you see is what you get as my wife says when it comes to me. So I didn't pick it up, but yeah, I picked up annoyance. I mean, just probably cause I was doing something annoying. So it was appropriate. And that happened with every developer probably I worked with. Yeah. Although that's probably because you had love of product, right? I'm mean, some developers just want to code and they don't mm -hmm. really care what you send them, right? They're just want to yeah. write code. And so you just send them something like, great, this is another yeah. piece of code I but can that, write. That's, but that's trade-offs. On one hand, that's good. Like if you, let's say you're doing a, a one person startup and you're just shipping off code to some outsourced person and they don't ask questions they just say i'm just gonna do it and this could cost this much and they said okay good and bad right it's good and that like you, you just what you write down gets done you know what you're getting on the other hand if you have someone that wants to engage you might get a bit you might get better options you might get something you actually wanted earlier but there, yeah, yeah there, there's definitely like especially like when i'm interviewing engineers i always try to identify is this person an academic or are they more like a product person and different types of developers are better for different parts of the stack or different parts of a product we had one on blue shell games i'm not going to drop any names but we had a dev on blue shell games who was a power dev i mean you could give this guy anything and he would just code it so fast and then he was an excellent excellent developer but he didn't care i mean you could give him i mean we would be giving him the slot machine designs i think over and over again and he would just be cranking them out and mm -hmm. just totally yeah. fine with it I think that's a learning lesson I've had over the years, particularly at Liquid and Grit, is that you have to cater your style to the person. There's no one size fits all. Understanding the person that you're talking to, their motivations is huge to being successful as a leader or as a product manager. I, I sort of do it in the three-person framework. This is from a podcast from Jocko, but there's the person that you have to tell specific directions to. Go right, go left, go up the hill, go to, and then tackle that hill. There's the person that you just have to say, we need to get that hill. And then there's the last person that always... <laughs> always says the opposite so you say we can't possibly get that hill and they'll be like yes we can so there's like these three personalities these archetypes that you have to cater your leadership style to and that's always helped me at least in the last couple of years katie's thinking no that doesn't help you at all and you, and you need <laughs> well, a lot of work on your leadership but <laughs> the other angle of that is um the context of like okay do you have work that is okay we need to get that hill or do you have work for like we need a hill in this area right right so in oh, different that context right it's, it's like that's another layer <laughs> 
Well, that we talked about that in our second podcast is I haven't figured out how to structure the company so that we have a system built for that, where you have these ambiguous problems and you don't even know where the hill is or if it's a hill or if it's a <laughs> pyramid, right? Like that is a whole nother level. That's advanced. I haven't gotten there. But one thing I wanted to, to ask you about was this arrogance piece, because you, you do talk about this in some of your posts, egotism and <laughs> ego and how that affects other things like process and control and autonomy. I, I think this is an interesting point that people don't talk about a lot is, is the concept of ego. How does that play into your thought of sort of the ideal working environment? I feel like ego can show up at least, you know, for me when like, I think I'm right. And I think someone else is wrong, or their goal is wrong. I feel like I've seen this more when you have an org where the silos are really strong, right? So like when you think about people you work with who always say, oh, like, they don't refer to people by name, they say like, this department, the art department, or the engineers, or the product team, or designers, people that talk like that by default, I feel like they're trained that way sometimes, or that's just like the org that they came out of, and like these silos. I feel like when that happens, my the sense that I've gotten is that whatever org they were trained that in, build up these silos, and then the goals were not necessarily aligned. Things were tossed over walls. And I feel like that can build up ego because your sense of what is right or value is isolated. And then if you go to orgs where you have more cross-functional teams or better communication, you'll find that they have more, they're more aligned in their goals. Uh, and it's less about like, oh, this department didn't do this in time. Oh, they screwed up. Or I'm waiting for this thing from this department. Who cares, man? Like, is, is, is it working down? Like, it becomes less about your, your department or you. It should be more about your goal and the work that's moving towards that goal. Um, and then for me, you know, when I was like a young developer, like, I thought it was awesome. I come like, oh, this code is gonna be awesome. It's gonna be clean. It's gonna take this long. And you're wrong because that's a waste of time. But I was like pretty isolated because I, you know, I probably didn't know what the hell the goal even was, like, or how important it was to make this pixel perfect for this, um, you know, so and so event or launch or whatever. And yeah, just every time I, I meet someone where they just default talk about departments, I'm like, oh, shoot, I gotta, I gotta train this person the other way. Yeah, it's super clicky. Yeah builds a lot of tension of course it does it's like so weird right and I've, I've always like had an aversion to that the random people that i've run across in my career who have been a little more toxic i've more often than not have had some of those i guess symptoms yeah and you talked about addressing that type of mindset what are some of the strategies that you've used before if someone comes into your organization and they maybe are in that more isolated framework of how an organization is run Sometimes you just need like interventions, like Fred, I don't know if you remember, there, there, was, there was at least one or two situations with you where I brought you and someone else into a meeting uh, to smooth something out. And there's one in particular, I don't know if you remember, and we brought you and this other person into a conference room and we started a discussion. I knew what was going to happen. Like, and you and, this, and, the other, and the other employee kind of worked it out on your own. I just like left. But like, I, like, I set it up so that you would guys work it out. And in that case, it worked really well because you had mutual respect. Your goals were aligned to some degree, right? And you guys, you worked it out. But there's another case where it just never worked out and this other person just shut down and we never, we couldn't improve that situation. And so we had to get rid of that one person. But yeah, a lot of sometimes it's intervention. Sometimes it's just like having like smaller conversations instead of like these giant emails that these people send out often or these giant meetings, just have like one-on-one -on -one conversation, like call them like one-on-one, -on -one, like, hey, let's talk this dude before I reply to this gigantic email with 50 people on it and like 10 directors, you know, uh, to get this decision across between departments, you know, like, I just have a conversation with two people. No perfect answers, but at least the one-on-one -on -one is good. Sometimes intervention, uh, it's never easy though. Uh, yeah, and I think I know some of the things you're talking about. And that experience actually at Blue Shell with, with that person in particular who was a talented person and I think fit a bigger org structure. He was more used to that siloed 
structure and he came with some of that stuff but that actually that experience was i think what influenced my decision to restructure our hiring process <laughs> with the belief yeah. that you don't know who's gonna be good because i remember that guy was the best on the interview i mean i felt mm-hmm. like i was blown away so many people were blown away and again i don't think that it was that he wasn't great i just don't think he was great for what type of company we were yeah and that experience was definitely something that I took into Liquid and Grit and said, you never know. Like, you do not <laughs> yeah. know. People yeah, can be amazing. Yeah. yeah, people can be amazing interviewers. Like they're just a really smooth talking. And I actually think that people who are somewhat confrontational by nature a little bit are actually good interviewers because they push back on the interview and they seem pretty confident that they can do that. So they're in the interview and you're asking questions and they're sort of pushing back and you're thinking, wow, this person is pretty impressive. They have the ability to push back. But then when they carry that ego to the company and they're pushing back on every single thing <laughs> and they're not interacting with the team, it's a big pain in the butt. And you're just, it's like, just gumming oh up God. the works. <laughs> yeah. But during the interview process, it's kind of impressive that they're doing this. So that was my experience with, with that, <laughs> you know, that type of personality. And again, I agree. We had that problem with Zynga where we had silos. And I remember we did lunches with the other groups and just had lunch and that even helped where you again food i mean it all comes back <laughs> to food really which we're a completely remote company so i don't know how we're going to solve that katie maybe we have friday lunches where everyone brings their own food or something like that but it is an interesting aspect i mean the human side of product management is so overlooked and it's so difficult it's mm-hmm. so hard and it's there's spreadsheets and people that's my new phrase for the last <laughs> year and it's just like spreadsheets are the easy part you know what I mean? Like I can build a spreadsheet <laughs> yeah. for anything. I got a spreadsheet that shows my workout programs, my life goals, you name it. But it's getting through the day and actually doing these things. It's just difficult. Or getting other people to do the things that they got to do on the spreadsheet. Man, that's the impossible part of the thing. <laughs> and like people easy. always say like product managers, it's about influence without you know authority. And that's it's so hard. I shifted from you know engineer to product manager like kind of later in my career, right? So I was always like already older than people, but I feel for all the the young, the younger product managers who are trying to like get in there and work with these like these teams who are five, 10 years older than them. And just by default, they're just like in a position where they feel like they have no influence. It's not impossible. And I think without, you know, some of the experience, you just have to get better at asking questions, getting better at that people part and asking great questions and aligning on goals. Like those little things like add up. That is a great recommendation. And I want to hear other ones, but I completely agree with the asking questions. That was a default that I learned early on. And it's super valuable is whenever you go into a conversation with an artist or a designer or a dev, start with a question. Do not start with a statement. If you start with a question, you immediately put them on in the position of control and then If they say the thing that you wanted them to say, you get to be the person who agrees with them, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. You get to be the one who's saying, oh, let's go with your idea, even though in your mind, it's the idea that you wanted to go with. And then you build this leadership equity, right? You build that equity that you don't have because you're not somebody who implements anything. And you might learn something that you didn't know about too, which is also a great way because they might say something you didn't even think of, as opposed to if you just come in and say like, I want it to be blue and red and purple. They're just going to go, oh, that's stupid, right? Whereas they might have thought of something way better. Even better is like if you have a goal, like like which choice do you think will hit our goal? It's more likely to hit our goal. If it's, like, if it's as clear as that and then you let the other person like answer, it might not matter what your opinion is. And that's also an opportunity, even if you think you're right and that person's wrong. If you go with that person's choice, 
if they end up being wrong, that's a learning experience for them, that they learn by making that choice. Whereas if they're dictated something, they won't learn it as well. That comes back to that goal again. Like if you have a goal where a decision is gonna get you closer to that goal or not, that's a decision that is uh, a learning experience. But if you don't have that goal and just kind of vague stuff, then you have to just figure out like how important is this question or this choice? And then goals help there. If it doesn't matter, then you shouldn't stress about it anyway. Good rec a book recommendation for that is the book called How to Master the Art of Selling, which is not a, to do with product management specifically, but it's a book that I've read probably four times. I, I have it in my room here and it's got underlines over everything. And it's one of the books that I built my company on. And it really opened my door, uh, opened my mind rather to the process of sales that what it could be. And what it comes down to is this really Socratic method in the way that they teach in this book. And that really resonated with me because you basically get onto a call. And if people are out there have been on demos with me or whatever those are, I'm just basically sitting there asking them questions for the first part of it. And they're almost surprised and taken back like, whoa, this guy isn't jumping into a prezo. He doesn't have a PowerPoint jumping up. He's just asking me, hey, what are you using now? What do you know about the tool? How can I help you? Would you like to see the tool? Would you like to see a demo? Would you? And first of all, they get really relaxed. And then they're the one talking. And then once you start finding out their pain points, then you can go use alternative choice, which is a question framework of, of two different options. Or you can start getting into closing techniques and things like that. But I think that really is applicable for even product management when you're dealing with somebody on your team is start out with the questions, then get when you start getting to problems, narrow into specific issues, and then eventually try to close them on your idea at the end of the conversation, as opposed to starting out in the front and forcing your idea down their throats, right? That book really helped me in doing it, but I'm still, I mean, it's still so hard. You just want to go in and go, I have this great idea. It's so great. This is what we're gonna do. You know, it's it's really hard. Yeah, that reminds me of um like another thing that took me a long time to to learn. Like not just at work with coworkers, but like you know even in my family, where it's really tempting to like want to convince someone on the spot, say why you're right and blah blah blah. Sometimes I painfully learned that sometimes you just have, you know say your piece, ask the right questions, and if they don't agree, back off and give them time. Because sometimes it takes time to digest. And surprisingly, like, um, there's this one engineer at, uh, you know, at Blue Shell, I remember describing some, some work that we we're doing and he didn't agree. I gave my reasons. I didn't try to fight too much on it, but I gave my reasons. Then 10 minutes later, you know, we're in like the office space and, you know, we're like 20 feet apart. He's like messaging me this paragraph saying all the stuff, explaining, but then he was like saying, oh, I thought about it. And I think you're right. And I was like, oh, yes, I was trying to be, I was actively trying to be patient. And that was, I guess, one of my first instances where like it paid off and I learned a lesson. Just got to wait sometimes. Yeah. And it gives the other person a chance not to go for their knee-jerk reaction. I think sometimes a lot of people are just, no, and they don't yeah. actually think. It's just, that's their habit. Yeah. You're in defense mode and you're not going to back out, right? Like it's like a show of weakness. Like no one wants to show weakness, right? On the spot. In the book, they talk about how you should never ask a question that has the potential of a no answer. So you basically never ask a question that you could actually say no to. So you only start out with questions that are who, what, where, when, whys, and those aren't questions that you would answer with no. And then you switch to alternative choices. And those are questions like, would you like an apple or an orange? And both of those are products that you're going to buy, right? Yeah. Would you like to build it today or start development tomorrow? 
right? Neither of those are no's. And then at the end, you use closing techniques or you do also, can't remember the exact name, but you would basically have them rephrase. So if someone says, well, I really think that we should start this next week, you would basically ask them the question again. So they say it. So you want to start next week and they'd be like, yes. And so you build all these little yeses to the bigger yes. And it sounds super cheesy. You have to make it not so obvious but it actually works and it's pretty wild when it does. And it works at home. Sam, I know you're talking to, I'm married to, <laughs> although only, you know, 0.05% of the time it works at home. And then it works, you know, a little bit more at work and with your kids, it works probably <laughs> the most, but it's a pretty interesting framework. And I think an important part of product development success. This um, reminded me of some more questions that I think are like kind of fit in here. So it's really easy when you're like discussing things, people say, oh, this is gonna be hard or whatever, like just a reaction of like how long it's gonna take or painful. Uh, what, what I learned like, you know, some years ago is to ask question, could, if, this could work if, so-and-so like what would it take to work so then you just you're flipping the mindset not like oh this is gonna be so hard or we're not gonna hit this deadline or what would it take for this to work you know you can get to like things with the estimates or like oh instead of asking them how long will this take or i think i learned this from this guy dan north he had this thing where like okay don't just ask like how long will this take but like if it took 12 months would you be embarrassed that yeah, took 12 months will it be done tomorrow no okay so somewhere between tomorrow and 12 months it's a slightly different twist on the on the conversation it's i haven't found that always useful but it's at least a way to break the tension of like asking for an estimate so between some of those little techniques and depending on the context and the people and asking those could have questions i find it's a it's a more positive spin on like when can you get my spec done? <laughs> and I found that product managers will sometimes not do something because they think it's too difficult before they even talk to the developers, which I also think is wrong because mm -hmm. I found that sometimes more difficult tasks are more fun. And if they're more fun for the developer and they're more exciting, the developer will actually do it faster because they want to do it as opposed to the boring things that they're doing every week. So I would caution you not to not go talk to the developer and say, hey, I have this wild idea. I think we should build this thing. And I'll tell a blue shell story. We had been acquired and it was sort of in the works. And we thought it was kind of when VR was getting pretty big. Oculus oh, was coming yes. out. A couple yeah. of people had the Oculuses around the office. We were just messing around because we were waiting for the, the ink to dry on our acquisition contract. And I thought of the idea, what if we build a VR slots game? And this has nothing to do with anything we're doing during the daytime, Katie, okay? Yeah. Other than the fact that we build slot machines, there's nothing to do with our company that has anything to do with VR, right? Like that's just that's just out there, right? Well, I was like, if you guys build it, I will go <laughs> sell it to some land-based casinos. Like you build it, I'll <laughs> sell it. I don't remember the time frame, but it was yeah, weeks. Yeah, it was fast. Yeah. It was not long where we ended up having a... VR slots game where you throw on the Oculus and then you connect to the computer and you would be in the Badlands, right? So the Badlands is like South Dakota. It's just like rolling hills. And there are horses off into the <laughs> yes. distance a little bit. And it had this slots console right in front of you, like a slot machine box that you would see in a casino, right? But it's virtual. And you're, you throw on the Oculus and you're in this world and you press space bar on the computer and that hits the virtual machine. And the reels would spin and they spun three or four times, then you'd hit a free spin, which is the big win in slots, right? And the free spin would happen. And then the horses would start going across the screen behind the slot machine. And you could do the 360 spew and everything like that. And that awesome. literally <laughs> within a week, 
or two. I can't even remember the time frame, but it was, yeah, it was, it was so fast. Yeah. They were like, here it is, Brett, like go sell it. So I ended up getting LinkedIn premium or whatever. And I start messaging all these casinos in California, right? Which is like the Red Hawk casino or whatever it is. Yeah, like they're not you just drove out like one day. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, we get this confirmation from the slots manager of, I think it was Red Hill Casino. It was a big casino in California. And he's like, yeah, I'd like to see your virtual VR slot machine. So Dave and I get in a car, drive two hours on a Wednesday to Red Hill Casino in Central California. Never forget this. Drive down these, not dirt roads, but I mean, it's just like, there's nothing out there. Drive down and all of a sudden there's just this giant casino. We go into the casino and we basically have to ask for like Ron or something, right? And we're walking around and then someone's like, yeah, I'll take you there. We go to the back of the casino. I'm not kidding. And we like, this big security guy opens up these back doors. We go down this hallway, over another hallway. Well, not dark, but it's like kind of small office where this Ron guy. Now, just throw every stereotype you can into the guy that runs slots on a casino in California on a reservation. This guy fit the bill. Like he was jacked, shaved head, cheap suit, just big dude, right? And he sits down and I... Dave, Dave brought a t-shirt. I will never forget because Dave had like a blue shell t-shirt and he's like, hey, we brought you a t-shirt. And the guy's looking at it like, what, what is this? And so we sit down, I give him a little pitch and we throw in the Oculus. Okay. And this guy, I mean, his neck was bigger than his head and he didn't turn his neck. He just sat there with the, we're like, dude, you can turn 360. It's a, you just sat there with it on. Like you didn't say anything. And he had his little sidekick there. It was kind of looking on and he throws the thing on, press the space bar, he plays it. And he's like, yeah, man. Okay. And he takes it off. And we're like, what do you think? He's like, yeah, if you build this, we'll put a couple machines in our, in our casino. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we get back, walk down the hallway, get back in the car and drive right back. Oh, stop at In-N-Out Burger and crush some serious burgers <laughs> and fries and then go back to the office and tell them that they'll, they'll buy these cabinets. And I kid you not, I was actually debating whether or not to start a VR con uh, slots console company after Blue Shell Games because of that experience. I was debating it between that and Liquid and Grit. I was thinking about what I could do with it, but ultimately I really didn't want to be in the slots like, <laughs> creation business. Like I just didn't think I had enough connections in it and I didn't really see the long-term vision of it. I thought I could get bought, but all this other stuff. That was actually probably runner up or or maybe two to Liquid and Grit. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's, that's oh, my little tangential story of VR slots in back of casino. But we do like to ask all of our guests where they think the puck is going in the next year, two years, five years in gaming and entertainment. Well, from my current experience as a dad with two kids in middle school and elementary school, dude, imagine Roblox in 10 years. It's going to be insane. Imagine cyberpunk level, like crazy deep storytelling inside Roblox. Like that's what I'm looking forward to. Like it's just, it's gonna be amazing. I would second that because I have three kids and particularly because of COVID, we've just basically said games are the most entertaining thing you can do. We There's nothing else to do. And they are crushing Roblox and all their friends are. And I mean, my four-year-old Austin all, knows everything about it. They talk about it all the time. It's yeah, that game times however many improvements and iterations over the next couple of years, it's gonna be incredible. Like when you talk about TikTok and all this, like, you know, different ways of social media and chat apps, like all that's just gonna happen in Roblox. 
it's almost like punishment for my kids to watch TV now. To give you, I mean, they're like, TV, a show, we can't play Roblox. They're like, dad, why not? Yeah. So I'm like, you know, because we don't want to hear you screaming at your friends for the next hour. We just want to just be chill in our house. But that's how strong it is. Yeah, I don't think people understand that if they don't have kids. They think, well, this is just a phase. I'm like, no, dude, it's coming and it's coming hard. Like yeah. our kids, they're never going to go to the movies. They're not going to watch cable. My kid didn't even watch the Super Bowl. He was just like, nope, I can play Roblox. Like, sweet. Yeah, especially with all the content on YouTube. Like, my son is, like, always, like, double, triple duty. Like, chat with one person, playing Roblox, YouTube channel, watching something about Roblox. I'm bullish on YouTube, too. But I haven't watched television or really anything else for the last year now. And I have premium YouTube. And I freaking love it. In fact, I was talking to my wife about this last night, how much I love YouTube, because I'm crushing YouTube at night. It used to be just a random show, right? But instead of watching like some random show, I'm watching MacBook reviews, bass fishing techniques, just random stuff I want to learn for an hour. And I don't have any ads. There's no ads. YouTube is incredible. The the content quality, the depth of uh, what we were talking about before. And I'm watching how to bass fish clear lakes in the spring in California of a high quality video this morning, right? I live in California. I fish and I bass fish clear lakes. It's so much better than watching some random show that's been created by CBS about Michael Jordan, which is like moderately interesting to me. When I'm watching the Michael Jordan of bass fishing tell me how to fish a lake near my house. The content is getting better and better. We got celebrities going on YouTube now, so the, the quality of actors is gonna get better and better. I don't, I don't see that stopping, and I agree with Roblox and YouTube, so let's get predictions, Sam. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And thanks again to our guest, Sam, for sharing his experiences with us. Do you have any burning questions about the episode or an idea for a future guest? Then please shoot Brett an email at brett.novak at liquidandgrit.com. Again, that is B-R-E-T-T dot N-O-W-A-K at liquidandgrit.com. We really hope you were inspired by today's episode, and if you were, please consider subscribing to our show and sharing it in all the places that you love to share things. So until next time, here's Brett to close us out. The specificity, this, is that right? The, the specific, <laughs> the, 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 tac, the specificity, the, what is it? What's the word, Katie? Specificity. Specificity. Okay. The exactitude. Yeah, the... <laughs> The preciseness of content that you can get of high quality is incredible.